section five of the notebooks of samuel butler this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by elaine conway england the notebooks of samuel butler edited by henry festing jones section four the germs of erewhon and of life and habit prefatory note the origin of species was published in the autumn of eighteen fifty nine and butler arrived in new zealand about the same time and read the book soon afterwards in eighteen eighty he wrote in unconscious memory close of chapter one as a member of the general public at that time residing eighteen miles from the nearest human habitation and three days journey on horseback from a bookseller's shop i became one of mr darwin's many enthusiastic admirers and wrote a philosophic dialogue the most offensive form except poetry and books of travel into supposed unknown countries that even literature can assume upon the origin of species this production appeared in the press canterbury new zealand in eighteen sixty one or eighteen sixty two but i have long lost the only copy i had the press was founded by james edward fitzgerald the first superintendent of the province of canterbury butler was an intimate friend of fitzgerald was closely associated with the newspaper and frequently wrote for it the first number appeared twenty fifth of may eighteen sixty one and on twenty fifth of may nineteen eleven the press celebrated its jubilee with a number which contained particulars of its early life of its editors and of butler it also contained reprints of two of butler's contributions viz darwin among the machines which originally appeared in its columns thirteenth of june eighteen sixty three and lucubratia ebria which originally appeared twenty ninth of july eighteen sixty five the dialogue was not reprinted because although the editor knew of its existence and searched for it he could not find it at my request after the appearance of the jubilee number a further search was made but the dialogue was not found and i gave it up for lost in march nineteen twelve mr r a streetfield pointed out to me that mr tregaskis in holborn was advertising for sale an autograph letter by charles darwin sending to an unknown editor a dialogue on species from a new zealand newspaper described in the letter as being remarkable from its spirit and from giving so clear and accurate a view of mr d s theory having no doubt that this referred to butler's lost contribution to the press i bought the autograph letter and sent it to new zealand where it now is in the canterbury museum christchurch with it i sent a letter to the editor of the press giving all further information in my possession about the dialogue this letter which appeared first of june nineteen twelve together with a presentation of darwin's autograph 
stimulated further search and in the issue of twentieth december eighteen sixty two the dialogue was found by miss colborne veal whose father was editor of the paper at the time butler was writing for it the press reprinted the dialogue eighth of june nineteen twelve when the dialogue first appeared it excited a great deal of discussion in the colony and to quote butler's words in a letter to darwin eighteen sixty five called forth a contemptuous rejoinder from i believe the bishop of wellington this rejoinder was an article headed barrel organs the idea being that there was nothing new in darwin's book it was only a grinding out of old tunes with which we were all familiar butler alludes to this controversy in a note made on a letter from darwin which he gave to the british museum i remember answering an attack in the press new zealand on me by bishop abraham of wellington as though i were some one else and to keep up the deception attacking myself also but it was all very young and silly the bishop's article and butler's reply which was a letter signed a m and some of the resulting correspondence were reprinted in the press fifteenth of june nineteen twelve at first i thought of including here the dialogue and perhaps the letter signed a m they are interesting as showing that butler was among the earliest to study closely the origin of species and also as showing the state of his mind before he began to think for himself before he wrote darwin among the machines from which so much followed but they can hardly be properly considered as germs of earwon and life and habit they rather show the preparation of the soil in which these germs sprouted and grew and remembering his last remark on the subject that it was all very young and silly i decided to omit them the dialogue is no longer lost and the numbers of the press containing it and the correspondence that ensued can be seen in the british museum butler's other two contributions to the press mentioned above do contain the germs of the machine chapters in Erewhon, and led them to the theory put forward in life and habit in nineteen o one he wrote in the preface to the new and revised edition of Erewhon, the first part of Erewhon written was an article headed darwin among the machines and signed salarius it was written in the upper rangitata district of canterbury province as it then was of new zealand and appeared at christchurch in the press newspaper june thirteenth eighteen sixty three a copy of this article is indexed under my books in the british museum catalogue the article is in the form of a letter and the copy spoken of by butler as indexed under his name in the british museum being defective the reprint which appeared in the jubilee number of the press has been used in completing the version which follows further on in the preface to the nineteen o one edition of erewhon he writes a second article on the same subject as the one just referred to appeared in the press shortly after the first but i have no copy it treated machines from a different point of view and was the basis of pages two hundred and seventy to two hundred and seventy four of the present edition of erewhon 
this view ultimately led me to the theory i put forward in life and habit published in november eighteen seventy seven i have put a bare outline of this theory which i believe to be quite sound into the mouth of an erewhonian professor in chapter twenty seven of this book the second article was lucubratio ebria and was sent by butler from england to the editor of the press in eighteen sixty five with a letter from which this is an extract i send you an article which you can give to fitzgerald or not just as you think it most expedient for him is not the subject worked out and are not the canterbury people tired of darwinism for me is it an article to my credit i do not send it to fitzgerald because i am sure he would put it into the paper i know the undue lenience which he lends to my performances and believe you to be the sterner critic of the two that there are some good things in it you will i think feel but i am almost sure that considering usque ad nauseam etc you will think it had better not appear i think you and he will like that sentence there was a moral government of the world before man came into it there is hardly a sentence in it written without deliberation but i need hardly say that it was done upon tea not upon whisky p s if you are in any doubt about the expediency of the article take it to m p p s perhaps better take it to him anyhow the preface to the nineteen o one edition of erewhon contains some further particulars of the genesis of that work and there are still further particulars in unconscious memory chapter two how i wrote life and habit the first tentative sketch of the life and habit theory occurs in the letter to thomas william gale butler which is given post this t w g butler was not related to butler they were met first as art students at heatherley's and butler used to speak of him as the most brilliant man he had ever known he died many years ago he was the writer of the letter from a friend now in new zealand from which a quotation is given in life and habit chapter five page eighty three to eighty four butler kept a copy of his letter to t w g butler but it was imperfectly pressed he afterwards supplied some of the missing words from memory and gave it to the british museum darwin among the machine to the editor of the press christchurch new zealand thirteenth of june eighteen sixty three sir there are few things of which the present generation is more justly proud than of the wonderful improvements which are daily taking place in all sorts of mechanical appliances and indeed it is matter for great congratulation on many grounds it is unnecessary to mention these here they are sufficiently obvious our present business lies with considerations which may somewhat tend to humble our pride and to make us think seriously of the future prospects of the human race if we revert to the earliest primordial types of mechanical life the lever the wedge the inclined plane the screw and the pulley or analogy lead us one step further to that one primordial type from which all the mechanical kingdom has been developed we mean to the lever itself and if we then examine the machinery of the great eastern we find ourselves almost awestruck 
at the vast development of the mechanical world gigantic strides with which it has advanced in comparison with the slow progress of the animal and vegetable kingdom we shall find it impossible to refrain from asking ourselves what the end of this mighty movement is to be in what direction is it trending what will be its upshot to give a few imperfect hints towards a solution of these questions is the object of the present letter we have used the words mechanical life the mechanical kingdom the mechanical world and so forth and we have done so advisedly for as the vegetable kingdom was slowly developed from the mineral and as in like manner the animal supervened on the vegetable so now in these last few ages an entirely new kingdom has sprung up of which we as yet have only seen what will one day be considered the antediluvian prototypes of the race we regret deeply that our knowledge both of natural history and of machinery is too small to enable us to undertake the gigantic task of classifying machines into the genre and subgenre species varieties and subvarieties and so forth of tracing the connecting links between machines of widely different characters of pointing out how subservience to the use of man has played that part among machines which natural selection has performed in the animal and vegetable kingdom of pointing out rudimentary organs see note which exist in some few machines feebly developed and perfectly useless yet serving to mark descent from some ancestral type which has either perished or been modified into some new phase of mechanical existence we can only point out this field for investigation it must be followed by others whose education and talents have been of a much higher order than any which we can lay claim to some few hints we have determined to venture upon though we do so with the profoundest diffidence firstly we would remark some of the lowest of the vertebrata attained a far greater size than has descended to their more highly organized living representatives though so a diminution in the size of machines has often attended their development and progress take the watch for instance examine the beautiful structure of the little animal watch the intelligent play of the minute members which compose it yet this little creature is but a development of the cumbrous clocks of the thirteenth century it is no deterioration from them they may come when clocks which certainly at the present day are not diminishing in bulk may be entirely superseded by the universal use of watches in which case clocks will become extinct at the earlier saurians while the watch whose tendency has for some years been rather to decrease in size than the contrary will remain the only existing type of an extinct race views of machinery which we are thus feebly indicating would suggest the solution of one of the greatest and most mysterious questions of the day we refer to the question what sort of creature man's next successor supremacy of the earth is like we have often heard this debated but it appears to us that we are 
ourselves creating our own successors we are daily adding to the beauty and delicacy of their physical organization we are daily giving them greater power and supplying by all sorts of ingenious contrivances that self-regulating self-acting power which will be to them what intellect has been to the human race in the course of ages we shall find ourselves the inferior race inferior in power inferior in that moral quality of self-control who can look up to them as the acme of all that the best and wisest man can ever dare to aim at no evil passions no jealousy no avarice no impure desires will disturb the serene might of those glorious creatures sin shame and sorrow will have no place among them the minds will be in a state of perpetual calm the contentment of a spirit that knows no wants is disturbed by no regrets ambition will never torture them ingratitude will never cause them the uneasiness of a moment guilty conscience hope deferred pains of exile the insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes these will be entirely unknown to them if they want feeding the use of which very word we betray our recognition of them as living organism they will be attended by patient slaves whose business and interest it will be to see that they shall want for nothing they are out of order they will be promptly attended to by physicians who are thoroughly acquainted with their constitutions if they die for even those glorious animals will not be exempt from that necessary and universal consummation they will immediately enter into a new phase of existence what machine dies entirely in every part one and the same instant we take it that when the state of things shall have arrived which we have been above attempting to describe man will have become to machine what the horse and the dog are to man he will continue to exist nay even to improve and will be probably better off in his state of domestication under the beneficent rules of the machines than he is in his present wild state we treat our horses dogs cattle and sheep on the whole with great kindness we give them whatever experiences teaches us to be best for them and there can be no doubt that our use of meat has added to the happiness of the lower animals far more than it has detracted from it in like manner it is reasonable to suppose the machines will treat us kindly their existence is as dependent upon ours as ours is upon the lower animals they cannot kill us and eat us as we do sheep they will not only require our services in the parturition of their young which branch of their economy will remain always in our hands but also in feeding them in setting them right if they are sick in burying their dead or working corpses into new machines it is obvious that all the animals in great britain save man alone were to die and if at the same time all intercourse with foreign countries were, were by some sudden catastrophe be rendered perfectly impossible 
fact is obvious that under such circumstances the loss of human life would be something fearful to contemplate in like manner were mankind to cease the machines would be as badly off or even worse the fact is that our interests are inseparable from theirs and theirs from ours each race is dependent upon the other innumerable benefits and until the reproductive organ of the machines have been developed in a manner which we are hardly yet able to conceive they are entirely dependent upon man for even the continuance of their species it is true that these organs may be ultimately developed inasmuch as man's interest lies in that direction there is nothing which our infatuated race would desire more to see a fertile union between two steam engines it is true that machinery is even at this present time employed in getting machinery in becoming the parent of machines often after its own kind the days of flirtation courtship and matrimony appear to be very remote and indeed could hardly be realized by our feeble imperfect imagination by day however the machines are gaining ground upon us day by day we are becoming more subservient to them more men are daily bound down as slaves to tend them more men are daily devoting the energies of their whole lives to the development of mechanical life upshot is simply a question of time but that the time will come when the machines will hold the real supremacy over the world and its inhabitants is what no person of a truly philosophic mind can for a moment question our opinion is that war to the death should be instantly against them every machine of every sort should be destroyed by the well-wisher of his species let there be no exceptions made no quarter shown let us at once go back to the primeval condition of the race if it be urged that this is impossible under the present condition of human affairs this at once proves that the mischief is already done that our servitude has commenced in good earnest that we have raised a race of beings whom it is beyond our power to destroy and that we are not only enslaved but we are absolutely acquiescent in our bondage for the present we shall leave this subject which we present gratis to the members of the philosophical society should they consent to avail themselves of the vast field which we have pointed out we shall endeavour to labour in it ourselves at some future and indefinite period i am sir and c delarius note we are asked by a learned brother philosopher who saw this article in ms what we meant by alluding to the rudimentary organs in machines did we he asked give any example of such organs we pointed to the little protuberance at the bottom of the bowl of our tobacco pipe this organ was originally designed for the same purpose as the rim at the bottom of a teacup it is but another form of the same function its purpose was to keep the heat of the pipe from marking the table on it on which it rested as we have seen in the very early tobacco pipes 
this protuberance was of a very different shape to what it is now it was broad at the bottom and flat so that while the pipe was being smoked the bowl might rest upon the table use and disuse appear come in play and serve to reduce the function to its present rudimentary condition these rudimentary organs are rarer in machinery than in animal life is owing to the more prompt action of the human selection as compared with the slower even surer operation of natural selection man may make mistakes in the long run nature never does so you have only given an imperfect example but the intelligent reader would supply himself with illustrations lucopratio ebria from the press twenty ninth of july eighteen sixty five there is a period in the evening towards the still small hours of the morning in which we so far unbend as to take a single glass of hot whisky and water we will neither defend the practice nor excuse it we state it as a fact which must be borne in mind by the readers of this article we know not how whether it be the inspiration of the drink or the relief from the harassing work with which the day has been occupied or from whatever other cause yet we are certainly liable about this time to such a prophetic influence as we seldom else experience we are wrapped in a dream as we ourselves know to be a dream and which like other dreams we can hardly embody in a distinct utterance we know that what we see is but a sort of intellectual siamese twins of which one is substance and the other shadow but we cannot set either free without killing both we are unable to rudely tear away the veil of fantasy in which the truth is shrouded so we present the reader with a draped figure and his own judgment must discriminate between the clothes and the body the truth's prosperity is like a jest it lies in the ear of him that hears it some may see our lubricopation as we saw it and others may see nothing but a drunken dream or the nightmare of a distempered imagination to ourselves it is as a speaking with unknown tongues to the early corinthians we cannot fully understand our own speech and we fear lest there be not a sufficient number of interpreters present to make our utterance edify but there one straight to the body of the article the limbs of the lower animals have never been modified by any act of deliberation and forethought on their own part recent researches have thrown absolutely no light upon the origin of life upon the initial force which introduced a sense of identity and a deliberate faculty into the world but they do certainly appear to show very clearly that each species of the animal and vegetable kingdom has been moulded into its present shape by chances and changes of many millions of years the chances and changes over which the creature modified had no control whatever and concerning whose aim it was alike unconscious and indifferent 
forces which seem insensate to the pain which they inflict but by whose inexorably beneficent cruelty the brave and strong keep coming to the fore while the weak and bad drop behind and perish there was a moral government of this world before man came near it a moral government suited to the capacities of the governed and which unperceived by them had laid fast their foundations of courage endurance and cunning it laid them so fast that they became more and more hereditary horace says well fortes creantur portibus e bonis good men beget good children the rule held even in the theological period good ichthyosauri begat good ichthyosauri and would our discomfort have gone on doing so to the present time had not better creatures been begetting better things than ichthyosauri or famine or fire or convulsion put an end to them dates begat good apes and at last when human intelligence stole like a late spring upon the mimicry of our semi simious ancestry the creature learnt how he could of his own forethought add extra corporaneous limbs to the members of his body and become not only a vertebrate mammal but a vertebrate machinate mammal into the bargain it was a wise monkey who first learned to carry a stick and a useful monkey that mimicked him the race of man has learned to walk uprightly which as a child learns the same thing at first he crawls on all fours and he clambers laying hold of whatever he can and lastly he stands upright alone and walks but for a long time with an unsteady step so when the human race was in its gorillahood it generally carried a stick from carrying a stick for many million years it became accustomed and modified to an upright position stick wherewith it had learned to war would now serve it to beat its younger brothers and then it found out its service as a lever man would thus learn that the limbs of his body were not the only limbs that he could command his body was already the most versatile in existence but he could render it more versatile still with the improvement in his body his mind improved also he learnt to perceive the moral government under which he held the feudal tenure of his life perceiving it he symbolised it and to this day our poets and prophets still strive to symbolise it more and more completely the mind grew because the body grew more things were perceived more things were handled and being handled became familiar this came about chiefly because there was a hand to handle with without the hand there would be no handling and no method of holding and examining is the human hand the tale of an opossum is a prehensile thing but it is too far from his eyes the elephant's trunk is better and it is probably to their trunks that the elephants owe their simplicity it is here that the bee in spite of her wings has failed she has a high civilization but it is one whose equilibrium appears to have been already attained the appearance is a false one the bee changes though more slowly than man can watch her but the reason of the very gradual nature of the change is 
chiefly because the physical organization of the insect changes but slowly also she is poorly off for hands and has never fairly grasped the notion of tacking on other limbs to the limbs of her own body and so being short-lived to boot she remains from century to century humanized in status quo her body never becomes machinette whereas this new phase of organism which has been introduced with man into the mundane economy has made him a very quicksand for the foundation of an unchanging civilization certain fundamental principles will always remain but every century the change in man's physical status as compared compared with the elements around him is greater and greater he is a shifting basis on which no equilibrium of habit and civilization can be established were it not for this constant change in our physical powers which our mechanical limbs have brought about man would have long since apparently attained his limit of possibility he would be a creature of as much fixity the ants and bees he would still have advanced but no faster than other animals advanced if there were a race of men without any mechanical appliances we should see this clearly there are none nor have there been so far as we can tell for millions and millions of years the lowest australian savage carries weapons for the fight or the chase and has his cooking and drinking utensils at home a race without these things would be completely terre nature and not men at all we are unable to point to any example of a race absolutely devoid of extracorporaneous limbs but we can see among the chinese that with the failure to invent new limbs a civilization becomes as much fixed as that of the ants and among savage tribes we observe that few implements involve a state of things scarcely human at all. Such tribes only advance pari passu with the creatures upon which they feed. It is a mistake, then, to take the view adopted by a previous correspondent of this paper. To consider the machines as identities, to animalize them, and to anticipate the final triumph over mankind. They are to be regarded as the mode of development by which human organism is most especially advancing, and every fresh invention is to be considered as an additional member of the resources of the human body. Herein lies the fundamental difference between man and his inferiors. As regards his flesh and blood, his senses, appetites, and affections, the difference is one of degree rather than of kind but in deliberate invention of such unity of limbs as is exemplified by the railway train that seven lead foot which five hundred may own at once stands quite alone in confirmation of the views concerning mechanism which we have been advocating above it must be remembered that men are not merely the children of their parents they are begotten of the institutions of the state of the mechanical sciences under which they are born and bred these things have made us what we are 
we are children of the plough the spade and the ship we are children of the extended liberty and knowledge which the printing press has diffused our ancestors added these things to their previously existing members the new limbs were preserved by natural selection and incorporated into human society descended with modifications and hence proceeds the difference between our ancestors and ourselves by the institutions and state of science under which a man is born it is determined whether he shall have the limbs of an australian savage or those of a nineteenth-century englishman the former is supplemented with little save a rug and a javelin the latter varies his physique with the changes of the season with age and with advancing or decreasing wealth if it is wed he is furnished with an organ which is called an umbrella and which seems designed for the purpose of protecting either his clothes or his lungs from the injurious effects of rain his watch is of more importance to him than a deal of his hair at any rate than of his whiskers besides this he carries a knife and generally a pencil case his memory goes in a pocket book he grows more complex as he becomes older and he will then be seen with a pair of spectacles perhaps also with false teeth and a wig but if he be a really well-developed specimen of the race he will be furnished with a large box upon wheels two horses and a coachman let the reader ponder over these last remarks and he will see that the principal varieties and the sub-varieties of the human race are not now to be looked for among the negroes the caucasians the malays or the american aborigines but among the rich and the poor difference in physical organism organization between these two species of man is far better than that between the so-called types of humanity rich man can go from here to england whenever he feels so inclined the legs of the other are by an invisible fatality prevented from carrying him beyond certain narrow limits neither rich nor poor as yet see the philosophy of the thing or admit that he who can pack a portion of one of the p and o boats onto his identity is a much more highly organized being than one who cannot yet the fact is patent enough if we once think it over from the mere consideration of the respect with which we so often treat those who are richer than ourselves we observe men for the most part admitting however some few abnormal exceptions to be deeply impressed by the superior organization of those who have money it is wrong to attribute this respect to any unworthy motive feeling is strictly legitimate and springs from some of the very highest impulses of our nature it is the same sort of affectionate reverence which a dog feels for man and is not infrequently manifested in a similar manner we admit that these last sentences are open to question and we should hardly like to commit ourselves irrecoverably to the sentiments they express we will say this much for certain namely that the rich man is the true hundred-handed ideas of the poets 
he alone possesses the full complement of limbs who stands at the summit of opulence and we may assert with strictly scientific accuracy that the rothschilds are the most astonishing organisms the world has ever yet seen or to the nerves or tissues or whatever it be that answers to the realm of a rich man's desires is a whole army of limbs seen and unseen attachable he may be reckoned by his horsepower the number of foot pans which he has money enough to set in motion who then will deny that a man whose will represents the motive power of a thousand horses is a being very different from the one who is equivalent to the power of a single one henceforward then instead of saying that a man is hard up let us say that his organization is at a low ebb or if we wish him well let us hope that he will grow plenty of limbs it must be remembered that we are dealing with physical organizations only we do not say that the thousand horseman is better than a one horseman we only say that he is more highly organized and should be recognized being so by the scientific leaders of the period man's will truth endurance are part of him also they may as in the case of the late mr cobden have in themselves a power equivalent to all the horsepower which they can influence but were we to go into this part of the question we should never have done and we are compelled reluctantly to leave our dream in its present fragmentary condition letter to thomas william gale butler february eighteenth eighteen seventy six my dear namesake my present literary business is a little essay some twenty-five or thirty pages long which is still all in the rough and i don't know how it will shape but the gist of it is somewhat as follows One actions which we have acquired with difficulty and now almost unconsciously as in playing a difficult piece of music reading talking walking and the multitude of actions which escape inside other actions etc all this worked out with some detail say four or five pages general deduction that we never do anything in this unconscious semi-conscious manner unless we know how to do it exceedingly well and have had long practice also that consciousness is a vanishing quantity as soon as we know a thing really well we become unconscious in respect of it consciousness being of attention and attention of uncertainty and hence the paradox comes clear that as long as we know that we know a thing or do an action knowingly we do not know it or do the action with thorough knowledge of our business and that we only know it when we do not know of our knowledge two whatever we do in this way is all one and the same in kind the difference being only in degree playing almost unconsciously writing more unconsciously as to each letter reading very unconsciously talking still more unconsciously it is almost impossible for us to notice the action of our tongue in every letter 
walking much the same breathing still to a certain extent within our own control hearts beating perceivable but beyond our control digestion unperceivable and beyond our control digestion being the oldest of the habits three a baby therefore has known how to grow itself in the womb and has only done it because it wanted to on a balance of considerations in the same way as a man who goes into the city to buy great northern a shares it is only unconscious of these operations because it has done them a very large number of times already a man may do a thing by a fluke once but to say that a foetus can perform so difficult an operation as the growth of a pair of eyes out of pure protoplasm without knowing how to do it and without ever having done it before it is to contradict all human experience ipso facto that it does it it knows how to do it and ipso facto that it knows how to do it it has done it before its unconsciousness or speedy loss of memory is simply the result of overknowledge not of underknowledge it knows so well and has done it so often that its power of self-analysis is gone if it knew what it was doing or was conscious of its own act in oxidizing its blood after birth i should suspect that it has not done it so often before as it is i am confident that it must have done it more often much more often than any act which we perform consciously during our whole lives for when then did it do it clearly when last it was an impregnate ovum or some still lower form of life which resulted in that impregnate ovum five how is it then that it has not gained perceptible experience simply because a single repetition makes little or no difference but go back twenty thousand repetitions and you will find that it has gained an experience and modified its performance very materially six but how about the identity what is identity identity of matter surely no there is no identity of matter between me as i now am and me as an impregnate ovum continuity of existence then there is identity between me as an impregnate ovum and my father and mother as impregnate ova drop out my father's and mother's lives between the dates of their being impregnate ova and the moment when i became an impregnate ovum see the ova only and consider the second ovum as the first two ovas means not of reproducing themselves but of continuing themselves repeating themselves the intermediate lives being nothing but as it were a long potato shoot from one eye to the place where it will grow its next tuber seven given a single creature capable of reproducing itself and it must go on reproducing itself forever for it would not reproduce itself unless it reproduced a creature that was reproduce itself and so on ad finitum then comes descent with modification similarity tempered with dissimilarity 
dissimilarity tempered with similarity a contradiction in terms like almost everything else that is true or useful or indeed intelligible at all in each case of what we call descent it is still the first reproducing creature identically the same doing what it has done before only with such modifications as a struggle for existence and natural selection have induced no matter how highly it has been developed it can never be other than the primordial cell and must always begin as the primordial cell and repeat its last performance most nearly but also more or less all its previous performances a begets a which is a with the additional experience of a dash a begets a dash begets a hyphen which is a with the additional experience of an a dash an a and a hyphen and so on to a n but you can never eliminate the a let a n stand for a man he begins as the primordial cell being verily nothing but the primordial cell which goes on splitting itself up forever but gaining continually in experience put him in the same position as he was in before and he will do as he did before first he will do his tadpoles by rote so to speak on his head from long practice then he does his fish trick then he grows arms and legs all unconsciously from the inveteracy of the habit till he comes to doing his man and this lesson he has not yet learnt so thoroughly some part of it as the breathing and oxidization business he is well up to inasmuch as they form part of previous roles but the teeth and hair the upright position the power of speech though all tolerably familiar give him more trouble for he is very stupid a regular dunce in fact then comes his newer and more complex environment and this puzzles him arrests his attention whereon consciousness springs into existence as a spark from a horse's hoof to be continued i see it will have to be more than thirty pages it is still foggy in parts but i must clear it a little to go on to show that we are all one animal and that death which was at first voluntary and has only come to be disliked because those who do not dislike it committed suicide too easily and reproduction are only phases of the ordinary waste and repair which goes on in our bodies daily always very truly yours s butler end of section five